Okay, I believe we're ready to begin. Um, <clears throat> eventually, you'll see why the title of this message this morning is High Noon. Uh, we'll eventually get to that, and I'll, I'll explain it. Uh, but for those of you that come on time in Sunday school, you get to hear some of the things that are especially exciting to me. There are things that I originally get started at cottage prayer meeting because of things that we talk about there. And one of the things that is of great interest to a lot of different people I have discovered is uh, some of the, the things that do not appear to be explained on the surface in the book of Genesis, especially when it comes to beginnings. And uh, I think by nature we have a, a tremendous curiosity when it comes to the beginning. Even little children at a certain age come to their parents and, uh, and say things like, Mom, where did I come from? Where did I come from? So all of a sudden they're here, but they were not conscious of how they got here. And so how could you not be curious about how you did get here? Because after all, you are here. So I think in our nature, we want to understand the beginnings. One of the things that I have uh, discovered over the years is uh, people's thoughts about angels and when God created the angels. And there have been people who have been absolutely persuaded in their mind that angels existed in eternity past with God. But there's not a biblical basis for that conclusion at all. It is not in the Bible. Uh, what you do find in Scripture is that in six days, God created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. That's what it says. Well, what I try to go by is Scripture. And I try to always reference the Scriptures because there is no other source that you can appeal to when it comes to true history, then this book right here, this is the only book in existence that provides true history, is the Bible. It's also the only book that has ever been written that can tell you the truth about what's coming in the future. And so it's mathematically accurate. It's rigidly accurate. Uh, it's so rigidly accurate, God was pleased to inspire his, the Hebrew language in such a way that um, every letter has a numerical equivalent. Now, that's beyond my ability to explain. I, I've never really studied it through. 
I'm not a, I do good to speak English, let alone Hebrew and other languages. Um, um, but my understanding is that for every Hebrew letter, there's a numerical equivalent. Well, numbers, mathematics, is a pure science. Well, why should we be surprised that God would put together pure science with pure words? The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver purified in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So there's great emphasis there in Psalm 12 uh, concerning the uh, the kind of quality that we have received from God when it comes to his word. And so, um, anyway, the reason I'm emphasizing this at this point is because uh, there are many opinions out here in the world about many things. But if you cannot put your finger on the verse in the scriptures, then that's all you've got is an opinion. If you can put your finger on the verse because God said it, then you can count on it. You've got a basis for your conclusion. And so I think that I can stand up here and tell you with a great measure of confidence that angels did not exist prior to the six days of creation. God created them in all likelihood when he created the, the heavenly hosts, that is the sun, the moon, the stars, things of that sort. Uh, that's when he created those personalities. Uh, it's also rather interesting um, when it comes to the persons of angels, uh, they're practically indistinguishable from human beings. Um, when they appeared on earth, uh, you could not tell that they were angels. They appeared to be people just like you and me. So there's something about angels that are so similar to human beings in their creation that um, externally they're indistinguishable. And so what distinguishes them from you and I, again, we have to go to the scriptures to discover what it is that distinguishes them. And one of the outstanding things that distinguishes us from angels is uh, that God created man in his own image. Now, exactly what that means as compared to angels, I don't know that I'm quite ready, prepared to address that right now. I don't, I, I would like to think about it a lot more than I have already, but um, there's something very special about the creation of you and I. Uh, I'm certain that in some measure, the angels are, are part of the family of God, but there's something exceptional 
about you and I. And um, so I don't know how to go into it any further than I have and, and, uh, and be clear in what I'm saying. But one of the things that came up at Cottage Prayer Meeting was um, something that really I learned by reading Dr. Henry Morris's uh, study Bible years ago. Uh, when he emphasized the point that God created everything with apparent age. In other words, in our experience, uh, uh, you start out with seeds. Uh, farmers go out and they plant seed, and then it grows up, and then you have whatever that seed was predetermined to produce. If it's an apple tree or banana tree or whatever, uh, if it's uh, uh, chickens, you, we start with the egg. God did not start with seeds. A question might occur to you as to why he didn't. I mean, did God create chickens full grown this is what uh, Henry Morris spoke of in his Bible. I didn't complete what I was saying about that, but he created Adam a full grown, uh, full grown, probably being uh, 30 years old. Uh, the reason I say that is because of what we learn in the book of Numbers uh, when it came to. Uh, Maturity, as God viewed maturity, in serving him. And to be a Levite serving in the ministry of the tabernacle, it says seven times in Numbers chapter 4, it says seven times that you had to be 30 years old and you stopped serving when you were 50. Um, and so uh, I'm inclined to believe, even though the Bible doesn't say it, I'm inclined to believe, and this is what we talked about at Cottage Prayer Meeting, that Adam was in all likelihood 30 years old when God created him, and he created him full grown. He also created Eve full-grown, probably the same age. The Bible doesn't say. But when God created Adam and created Eve, he created them full-grown, prepared to serve him for all eternity. And so um, my inclination is to believe that Adam was... 30 years old uh, when God created him. Now, why is that of interest? Well, I'm going to tell you something that's kind of interesting. When you get into the New Testament, you learn about the first Adam and the second Adam. I think that's in Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul made a big deal over the fact that 
Jesus Christ was the second Adam. He put a parallel between Adam, the first man, and Adam, the second man. And one of the reasons was showing the opposite effect of the second Adam as compared to the first Adam. Because when Adam sinned, sin passed upon all men and all became sinners. Not only that, the effects of that sin affected the entire universe. Um, and so God cursed the ground and uh, uh, the animals and everything died and the second law of thermodynamics began to affect the entire universe. In Christ Jesus, that's reversed. I like to phrase it that way because the whole Bible is God's method of reversing the tragedy of Genesis in the fall of Adam and Eve. And when you study carefully, uh, I believe it's Romans chapter 8. I'm having to go by my memory here because I didn't write these things down. But I believe it's in the 8th chapter of, of Romans that the Lord is explaining that the day is going to come. He's going to reverse the curse as it affected the entire creation. And so everything is going to go back to perfection through Christ. And so what is the parallel between Adam being 30 years old when God created him and Jesus Christ, who was not born 30 years old, he was born as a baby. But here's what's interesting. There is no record of a public ministry, technically, until the Lord was 30 years old. Why? Because there's a parallel between Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question occurred in the cottage prayer meeting, uh, when did the, the fall actually take place? Well, my inclination is to think that it was about three and a half years after uh, <clears throat> God created Adam and Eve. Why would I say that? Because the public ministry of Jesus Christ did not begin until he was 30 years old. And in three and a half years later, what happened? He died. And so if it was three and a half years after Adam and Eve were created that the Lord slew the lambs and made coats of skin for Adam and Eve, then that would parallel what we read in the New Testament. Because Jesus Christ, his public ministry that the Gospels involved, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Bible scholars have basically confirmed this, that it's basically locked into that three-and-a-half-year period of time. Now, it does talk about his birth. <clears throat> it talks about what he did when he was 12 years old. He was found in the temple. It mentions that. 
But that is not the thrust of those gospels. The thrust of those gospels was his public ministry. And three and a half years later, he was crucified. And so um, I think that if you are trying to study the scriptures and you're trying to find serious answers to some of these questions that come up, I don't know whether you've ever thought about it or not, but I have, and I've, I've encountered a number of people who've asked me this question. When do you think, how long do you think Adam lived on the earth before it, it you know, Adam and Eve sinned against God? Uh, the question was, how long was it before Lucifer sinned, as we find recorded in Ezekiel 28. And again, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say. But if God created Adam and Eve with apparent age, he would have created Michael and Gabriel and Lucifer with apparent age. I mean, it's just a logical conclusion. He created the whole universe with apparent age. He created trees that were full grown. Uh, he did not create the seed first. He created the full grown tree, the full grown man. And so what would be the reason that you find no mention of him creating the seed? Well, it's logical. The seed is eternal. The seed is Christ. It always has been. There was no beginning to the seed. When you read Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, we're told that that seed was Christ. Well, he was without beginning of days nor end of life. And so if you're looking for a logical explanation as to why God created the full-grown universe and put focus on that rather than the seed and creating the seed is because Jesus Christ was not created. The seed was not created. The seed created everything that is. <laughs> and so I think that, again, this is something of the the genius of God in writing this book because the consistency even of the symbolism is perfect and as long as you follow God's logic God's logic you're going to probably have an accurate conclusion if you just base it on what he does say. And he does say these things. And there are certain things he does not say. And it's important to remember what he does not say. Well, he does not say that he created the seed. And I think the reason, again, is because Christ was not created. And all seeds in the Bible are a type of him. That's why in John chapter 12, uh, he said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. 
But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And so the Lord was using even a corn of wheat as a type of himself. Well, that corn of wheat is eternal. It's without beginning of days nor end of life. And so this is how I think that we should all go about studying the Bible and thinking about things that the Bible doesn't specifically address so that we do not get off course in our conclusion. What I'm telling you is based on what the Bible does say. So when it doesn't say certain things, you still have to base it on what he does say. And so my inclination is to believe that Adam and Eve uh, sinned about three and a half years after they were created, full grown. Because we see that in the parallel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his public ministry. Um, so, um, I don't know if that's, you know, something that you've ever thought about and would be interested in knowing or not, but such as it is, uh, some were interested in knowing uh, more about that, so that's the most I know about it. We want to go back to John's Gospel, and we're studying the third and fourth chapter in our studies today, and we've been showing in the past few studies the contrast between um, uh, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, um, well, actually, a contrast between John the Baptist and Nicodemus, well, that's how we were first approaching it. But it also goes into a contrast between John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ in this third and fourth chapter. And we're not going to go back over all of that, but I wanted to address a few additional thoughts that uh, people have come to me about uh, wanting to know what I thought about certain things, um, <clears throat> such as when did John the Baptist get saved? And... Uh, that's really a mystery of a question. And the reason that's somewhat of a mystery of a question is because of what the Bible does say about him. And what it does say about him is that he was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And so the question is, how could you be filled with the Holy Ghost from your mother's womb and not be saved from your mother's womb? Well, that's an excellent question, I think. And so I've tried to study the Bible with that as the proposition that Nicodemus was 
excuse me, uh, John the Baptist was saved from his birth. And there are a couple of reasons for believing that Nicodemus, that John the Baptist was born saved, physically born saved. Um, well, the first reason is because John the Baptist is a type of being born from the dead as a Christian. Do you realize that we're born from the womb of the grave, filled with the Holy Ghost from birth? John the Baptist is primarily a type of the Lord's view of our birth from the dead, which is what John chapter 3 is all about. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Okay, that is the birth that is in view, and John the Baptist illustrates that second birth that the Lord was talking to Nicodemus about. When you are born from the grave, you are born filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the life of Christ as your life. Not in the sense that you, be, you, you become Christ and your personality is replaced by the personality of Christ, and that's not what the Bible teaches at all. God created you to be the person that you are. You are unique, and you will never be able to be anyone other than who you are for all eternity to come. But when you are raised from the dead, filled with the Holy Ghost, what you are filled with is his nature. What you are filled with is his character. What you are filled with is his personality in the sense of the characteristics of his personality. You do not become Christ, but you'll have the personality of Christ. Isn't this something that we all desire as parents when it comes to our children? That they'll grow up with a nature that hates sin. Sure we do. That we'll have children that have our characteristics in terms of our personality to be not a respecter of persons, uh, to love and not discriminate in our love. This is the way we're going to be raised from the dead, is we're going to be like Christ in terms of his nature, in terms of his characteristics, even in terms of his personality uh, as we associate with one another and with him for all eternity to come. It will be impossible for us to sin in the same sense that it was impossible for Jesus Christ to sin. And so 
the first reason that I believe that John the Baptist was indeed a saved man filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb is because he is a type of the second birth. So this is what's so important to understand when you try to delve into what the Lord meant when he told Nicodemus, marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Nicodemus had no clue what he was talking about. He said, how can this be? How can a man be born a second time when he is old? He had no clue. Well, those of us who have the Bible to read and study can understand uh, Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, uh, where the Lord is, is there explaining it. Let's turn to it, because if I just tell you, it won't have as much meaning as just putting your eyes on it, because you need to see that I'm not dreaming this up. Acts chapter 13 and verse 33. He's talking about Jesus Christ here in this chapter. Uh, Paul is teaching here. In verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee? Now you got to see the connection here. Because it says in the first part of verse 33, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children. So it's talking about two things simultaneously. It's talking about you and me, and it's talking about Jesus Christ. But it's talking about when he was begotten from the dead, when he was born from the dead, because it says it, in that he has raised up Jesus again. He raised him up. From what? The grave. Okay, when we are raised from the grave, that is what the Lord was teaching Nicodemus. That's when you're born again, a second time. I mean, we sing that little song, you know, when people have a birthday about being born twice. And I think a lot of times we're singing it, we don't even know what we're saying. We don't know, we're not thinking through what we're actually saying. But that little song with the second part is Acts 13, 33. That's what it is. That is the second birth that the Lord Jesus was talking about when he was explaining it to Nicodemus. And so there's a second reason that I believe that what I'm telling you right now is absolutely the truth. There's a, a second reason that goes beyond um, John being a type of the second birth from the dead. 
And it has to do with Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10. And we talked about this. I, as a matter of fact, I brought a message on it, what, months or so ago. Who has despised the day of small things? Small things. I've also spent quite a bit of time talking about the fact that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God's ways are not our ways. We need, to, we need to examine more carefully God's thoughts and God's ways. Because in our way of thinking, everything that he says seems to be impossible. But God made it clear in Luke chapter 18 to the rich ruler and his disciples, with God, nothing is impossible. So the question is this, can God save a baby that's in the womb before it's even born? I can tell you without any doubt whatsoever, yes, he can. Why? Based on Zechariah 4.10. Who has despised the day of small things? Who's going to limit God and say that he can't save a baby that is a complete human being? In the womb. Anybody that says that a baby is not a complete human being in the womb doesn't believe the Bible. Uh, you'd be inclined to be for abortion, thinking, well, it's not really a baby until it's born. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. Well, I have pondered these things for years, some of these things. And um, especially people who ask, you know, when can you, when can you get saved? Can little children be saved? Can, can they be saved? And, and then you've got all these churches and the preachers in these churches that just demand that you've got to stand up you got to come down the aisle. You got to repeat after me. You got to agree to ever so many things in the doctrine of the faith and so forth. And then the preacher uh, pronounces you saved because you said those things. And then they baptize you. I'm going to tell you right now that is nothing in the world more than tradition of men. Totally unbiblical. Totally unbiblical. Nothing biblical about it. You don't find Jesus Christ getting Nicodemus down on his knees and praying after him and going down the Roman road and doing all those kinds of things. You don't see that. You don't see it in the case with the Ethiopian eunuch either. You don't see it anywhere in the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible like that. And so we've got to learn to read and study the Bible and separate from our minds what we've experienced traditionally in churches, which for the most part is wrong. That's why as the days go by, I understand better than I ever have before in my life why this church is called Calvary Memorial Church. 
It's not Calvary Memorial Baptist Church or Methodist Church or Pentecostal Church or Episcopalian or Lutheran. It's just Calvary Memorial Church because that's the only kind that's in the Bible that God recognizes. I mean, read the book of the Revelation, the seven churches in Asia. Which one of them was Baptist? Which one was Methodist? Which one was Episcopalian? Which one was Catholic? None of those things mean anything. I'm going to tell you something. When we stand before God Almighty, you're going to find out there's only one thing that meant anything, and you could understand it if you just simply read the Bible. It's the church. (laughs) Period. The true church that teaches this book. That's the only church that a person ought to ever attend. Is the church that has a preacher in it that teaches the word. This is the pillar and ground of truth. Is the church. Not a denomination. Denominationalism is... is is a form of humanism that essentially uh, gets participants into worshiping another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And I'm telling you, there's a different Jesus being preached all over this town this morning. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Another spirit. And another gospel. And it's not the gospel that you read about here. The only way in the world you can begin to understand the gospel is to first be absolutely broken by the opposite of the gospel. And that is that we hate the truth. That we hate Christ. And we love ourselves. And most people do not want to believe that's true at all. That we hate the God of the Bible. Listen, we proved it every day of our life before we got saved. That we hated the truth, ignored the truth, loved only ourselves. The gospel is not possible to to really be understood until you really understand something about your own helplessness and inability to do anything without Christ. Well, think about it. What can a little unborn baby do? Nothing. What does an unborn baby know? Nothing. What does a full-grown person know? I don't care if he's ever learning. He still doesn't know anything. That's what the Bible says. What about a full-grown person that has lived uh, 
30 years or 50 years or more. What have they done? The Lord said, without me, you can do nothing. Well, what about an unborn baby? Unborn baby knows nothing and can do nothing. I'm telling you that the main thing when it comes to getting saved is not the quantity of things you know. <clears throat> it isn't. The issue when it comes to salvation is attitude. Attitude. Now, I don't know why John the Baptist had the attitude that would cause the Lord to be nigh. But who has despised a day of small things in the all-wise God communicating to a little baby when he is in the womb of his mother Mary and is six months younger than John the Baptist, which is the way it was. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus Christ. And it tells us right there in Luke's account that when Elizabeth, when um, when Elizabeth came into the presence of Mary, she had John the Baptist in her womb. And when she entered into the room, that baby that was in her, John the Baptist, leaped for joy. He leaped for joy. Joy is not a reflex. Joy is an intellectual response. Who has despised a day of small things? Are we going to limit God and say that God cannot communicate even before he's born, while he's still in the womb of his mother, Mary, and limit him in saying, you can't communicate to another child that's six months older than you are before either one of you are born. You need to read Zechariah 4.10 a little more carefully. And the reason is because, you see, we look on the outward appearance of everything. But God looks on the heart. And in the infinite wisdom of God in the creation of the smallest things we know anything about whatsoever, which would be the atom. We think that we've really done something when we discover the atom. But what is there in an atom that we do not understand? Folks, it's another universe in an atom. Electrons, neutrons, and protons, that's another universe. But what's, what's inside an electron? What's inside a neutron? What's inside a proton? Do we know what's inside of them? 
And then when we discover what's inside of those things, what's inside of that? And so it goes on and on and on. The wisdom of God, folks, is so far beyond anything that we think about. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. And we best understand when God speaks about John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb for us to say that, well, that conflicts with everything that we've known in the churches. I mean, John the Baptist didn't eventually come down the aisle. He didn't take the preacher's hand. He didn't repeat that. Listen, the disciples didn't know and understand the cross. And they were saved. What person is going to take the Gospels and say that after the Lord called them and they left their nets and followed him, they were not saved? Who's going to say they didn't get saved until actually after the resurrection of Christ from the dead, when they then believed? Who's going to say that Abraham was lost when he uh, tried to facilitate God's will with Hagar and help God out? Was Abraham saved when he did all that? when he was practicing unbelief? I don't think you can find scripture and verse for that. I believe Abraham was as saved as he could be. He sure was. But he had to learn, just like we do, how to understand the small things and not despise them. When God says, okay, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a, a baby. And, and I know she's 90 years old, and she's now not as pretty as she was when you first saw her. And she was one beautiful woman. But she was not then. And here was Abraham, 100 years old, and he could not possibly comprehend how he and his wife could have a child. But that's because he despised God's ability to do many things. And God says, you're going to have a baby. And all of a sudden, their youth came back. God gave them their youth back. And Sarah conceived and gave birth to Isaac according to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. And we're going to read this book and we're going to say, well, John the Baptist and what it says about him just doesn't make sense. It makes all the sense in the world. I think it's one of the most powerful arguments for the, uh, the heinousness of killing little unborn babies 
I'm going to tell you what, folks. We're living in a country that is so apostate and so evil. So evil. I have no hesitation or problem whatsoever teaching in this pulpit that the United States of America is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. No problem whatsoever. Because this nation is wicked beyond words. Now, thank God by his mercy and grace, there's an element of people in this country that know the Lord and love the Lord. But I'm going to tell you something. The reason we're able to have this meeting this morning and we're still able to stand up here and teach the truth is because God knows about his people. He knows where they are, and he is protecting them. And he will until he takes us out. He sure will. He sure will. But when he takes the church out, he takes out the restrainer, as we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And when God removes his restraining Holy Spirit, then all hell is going to break loose in the whole world. And that's the judgment of God against the world, is when the world hates him and he removes himself uh, and his restraining power against their evil nature. Well, their evil nature is going to bloom and there's going to be unprecedented death there's three forms of wrath in the book of the revelation there's the wrath of man there's the wrath of satan and there's the wrath of god and so when you study the book of the Revelation, you're going to find there are three forms of wrath coming from three different areas. God, Satan, and man. And that's why a third of the whole human race is going to be destroyed. It's because God has removed his restraint. It's a time of judgment. But it's also a time when more people are going to get saved than have ever been saved at any given time in human history. So many people are going to get saved they cannot be numbered. You study that in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. It tells you no man could number them. So many people are getting saved. I think a lot of those people that get saved are not only Jews. They're Gentiles that went to apostate churches where they never heard the truth. But they're going to hear the truth in the tribulation period. Because 144,000 are going to preach it. The angel is going to be preaching the everlasting gospel. And you're going to have Enoch and Elijah preaching. Going all over the world preaching and people are going to hear the truth and they're going to believe it and get saved so a lot of people are going to get saved 
Okay, so I've tried to explain to you about John the Baptist because this third chapter of, of John's Gospel it goes from Nicodemus down to John the Baptist, and he is a very, very unusual personality. But I want you to notice one other thing. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. What kind of time are we up? We ain't got much time. If you look at Luke chapter 7, I'll show you this right quick. Um, Beginning at verse 18, and the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Well, John was in prison at this point. And his disciples come and tell him about Jesus Christ, the one that he said was going to increase and he was going to decrease. In verse 19, And John calling unto him, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Now here's what I want to show you about this, because this is pretty incredible to me. But it's an incredible thing in a very, very positive way to me personally, and I'm sure to you personally, after you hear this. Folks, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that has ever lived. Jesus Christ said so. Greatest prophet. His entire reason for existence, according to Isaiah 40, was to introduce the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was the only one in the whole world that could look at millions of people and say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. No one else could have done it. The reason is because God ordained before he was born that this was going to be his mission, to identify God to the world. And the reason it would be God is because our situation was so bad no one but God could save us. It's that bad. That's the bad news from heaven. That's the horrible message from heaven, is our condition of being lost was so desperate, no one but God could provide a remedy. That's the message of the Bible. Well, he goes from being the only person in the whole world who could identify Jesus Christ, his identity, to making this statement right here. Have I been wrong my whole life? Are you the one that's supposed to come? Or did I make a mistake and it's somebody else? He goes from the top to the bottom. And so will you and I. Why does the Bible teach us this? I'm going to tell you the reason. It's Romans chapter 7. Folks, the old nature cannot be converted. It cannot. 
And as long as you live in this world, even if you're John the Baptist, you're going to have that old nature that is full of doubt, full of unbelief, a nature that loves the world and the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Until the day you die, you're going to have it. God leaves that in us after we get saved so that we can study the rest of our life the so great a death that we deserve and the so great salvation that he has provided. That's the reason he does it. He wants you to struggle the rest of your life the way he struggled to save you. He wants you to struggle to appreciate it and demonstrate your appreciation of it every day by dying daily to yourself. Dying daily. What person would do that if God took away our old nature the day we got saved and the rest of our life we just lived a wonderful life with the life of Christ in us? But you know as good as I do that that's not the way it is. You get up every day of your life with your head full of sin, with sinful desires every day. And uh, John the Baptist did too. And the reason that's a blessing to me to know is because it comforts me to know that some of the things that have caused me to doubt that I was saved was in the Apostle Paul, was even in John the Baptist. Anyway, our time is gone. Uh, well, who wants to dismiss us here? Somebody back there? Kurt? Kurt, you're back there, aren't you? Yeah, you can dismiss us. Thank you. Mm.